Today, we'll discuss two sickening injustices of the U.S. capitalist economy. As the housing crisis intensifies, landlords are now stooping so low as to go after the children of the tenants they target for eviction. And at the same time, the ultra-rich are enjoying a historic decline in their payments for the estate tax on large inheritances, saving over $10 billion in 2020 alone, thanks to the Donald Trump tax cuts. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week. Thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We can't do this show without our patrons. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. He also has a new hard copy edition of his book, Understanding Marxism. It's only been recently released. It features a new lengthy introduction, which strengthens the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. All right, here we go. Shelter Force, the original voice of community development, writes, minor defendants, kids are being named in evictions. Linda's children were too young to write their own names when they were entered as defendants into a New York State housing court computer. Both children, now three and seven years old, are identified as legal parties in a pending eviction case against their mother. Absurd as that may sound, it's not a fluke. Minor children are sometimes named in eviction filings. When it happens, the damage is acute and difficult to repair, even if it's caught quickly. If a child's name makes it onto official court records, especially if those records are public and online, the damage can be irreversible. Richard Wolf, some of these kids who will have this on their, quote, record for a lifetime are three months old. (laughs) Now, I have to tell our audience that while this is disgusting, in public housing, this policy of evicting whole families 
because of a kind of collective punishment, if one member of the family is convicted of a crime, according to a law, the rule, the one strike policy in public housing, which by the way, the Supreme Court, yes, the great Supreme Court, those begowned lawyers, rich lawyers, many years ago upheld the one strike policy that allows public housing authorities to evict entire families if one member of the household committed a crime. Again, children being targeted in the private sector and in the very, well, I would say rapidly contracting public sector when it comes to public housing. Anyway, let's get started there. We do want to talk about the estate tax, but this is so, I mean, I guess people who are paying attention know about this, but most people perhaps are not paying attention. Anyway, your thoughts. Well, I think it's a wonderful, in the sense of horrible, but a wonderful example of the results of a capitalist economic system. I don't want to plead for sympathy with landlords. On the other hand, this system creates an absurd conflict between tenants who need housing and landlords who need to be compensated for the housing that they maintain and the housing that they make available and so on. And a rational system would understand, okay, to solve the problem of housing, to give people proper homes in which to live their lives, raise their families and all the rest, you have to work out an arrangement that satisfies the needs of the tenant and the needs of the landlord. This does not take rocket science, but capitalism as a system can't do this. It throws these people against each other, and it produces in the conflict between them horrible abuses of human rights, which is what this is. If you name a baby as part of an eviction procedure, then that baby's name goes into the computer. And it means that in the future, when a bank is considering making a loan or a contract to buy a home is uh, being negotiated, it's a normal procedure to check the computer to see if there's any outstanding liens or other problems with an individual. And up comes, you know, John Smith evicted for non-payment of rent or whatever the, the citation might say. And yeah, if you look carefully and you do research, you might discover that this person was three months old when all of this happened. But mostly the people who do these checks are not interested in the details, do not have the time, and here we go again in capitalism, are not paid the salary to do any of that research. So if the name appears and if it says eviction, a loan will be denied a home will be foreclosed, or whatever the procedure is. Is it unjust? Grotesquely. Is it increasingly normal? Absolutely. And by the way, it's really not any different from homelessness in this country. Whether the public authority 
throws you out because a member of your family committed a crime, which is collective punishment, if I ever saw it. You didn't commit a crime. Your cousin who lives with you did, or your sister did, and therefore your life is is thrown into chaos. I mean, what kind of justice is that? But then again, when you look at the crazy way we handle something as fundamental as housing, we put the landlords, whether they're public or private, in the position of not having an adequate funds often to do what they ought to do. So now they're in the position of being squeezed and they pass the squeeze on to the tenants as best they can. I mean, it's a horrific problem, but it is systemic. It's really not about this or that landlord, this one greedier than the next one. It's what you're allowing your system to do. Half of the people who are homeless in the United States have children. So you are saying that because the adult either doesn't have enough income or is facing overpriced housing, so the adult is homeless, you're simply condemning the children of that adult or of that adult couple to suffer. Everyone knows that children without a settled home don't do as well in school, have more physical and mental illnesses. The cruelty here, the injustice, even to children, tells you that you've got a sick system on your hands and you're not going to solve it by this adjustment over here or that one over there. You're going to deal with the system or you're not going to solve the problem. And the sad thing we're watching in the United States is the widespread acceptance of these horrific injustices as if they are somehow normal, routine, and something about which we can't do anything. Richard, it is the ultimate, not the ultimate, there is a few ultimates, so in which case they're not ultimate, but a few really pivotal indictments of the system. The inability to feed people where one-fifth of the population, or maybe one-sixth, but it's somewhere in that number, are labeled food insecure, also meaning you don't know where your next meal is coming from. In a land where there's abundance, where farmers are actually paid not to grow. Right. or not to raise more livestock because the capitalist government wants to maintain food prices at a higher level than the supply and demand cycle or you know ratio would you know leave them so you have a system that pays people not to grow at times of economic contraction like when covid started so many dairy farmers were just dumping you know millions of gallons of milk, literally millions of gallons of milk because they couldn't get them to market because the supply system through a few mega corporations was clogged up and it couldn't handle it because of a a decrease in demand when stores were closing. I mean, like an absurd system. Now, Engels, who along with Marx co-authored the Communist Manifesto at a very young age, he was 26 years old, Marx was 27 or 28. This was in 1848. In 1872 and 1873, when the issue of housing, what was called a housing crisis in Germany, and Germany, of course, was experiencing a capitalist sort of boom or, you know, advance at that time, but there was a very big housing crisis. And Engels, 
devoted quite a bit of time. It's people should look for articles called the housing question. There's a pamphlet called the housing question. Lenin in his book, state and revolution makes the argument for revolution by citing, and I believe it's in chapter four Engels on the housing question where Engels basically says, you can't really solve the housing crisis under capitalism. The road to the salvation or the solution of the problem has to go through the revolutionary path. There's not a reform. Now, Engels wrote in 72 or 73, 1872-73, that the revolutionary class policy of the proletariat cannot be replaced by a policy of reforms because, quote, it is not the solution of the housing question simultaneously solves the social question, but that only by the solution of the social question, that is by the abolition of the capitalist mode of production, is the solution of the housing question made possible. Okay, let's just pick that apart. And I want to get your thoughts because we do know that in certain capitalist countries, I'm thinking Austria, which we've discussed with you before, and also Singapore, there was a vast amount of social housing created under the capitalist system such that a huge part of the problem of homelessness or the problem of the housing crisis, so to speak, was in many ways solved. Again, it shows that building socialism, it doesn't mean we are starting from scratch. Anyway, again, let's talk about Engels and Marx and the the priority they put on this question for socialists and for those who were thinking the same thoughts that they were, that there needed to be a transformation of society. Well, I think if I can take us back to Austria and Vienna once again, I think you can see it. And you can even see it here in the United States to the extent that when we faced a housing crisis, which, by the way, we did at the end of World War II, because of the Great Depression that lasted in the 1930s and because of World War II, housing was not maintained, houses were not built, the resources that might have gone into them went into the war effort after 1939, and before that, everything shut down because we had a depression and nobody was working and nobody was building anything. Nobody could afford to buy homes except for the rich, etc. So when 1945 comes, the war is now over. Millions of uh, soldiers are demobilized, are coming home, and no houses have been built. And many houses have been allowed to go into ruin and so on be- because of the depression. So we had a housing shortage. And it was crystal clear that the private profit system of this country could not, in a reasonable amount of time, build housing. And even if they did, they would have charged more money in order to make a profit than the vast majority of people looking for housing could afford. So there we have it. The capitalist system puts together people who need housing but don't earn enough income and people who provide housing but charge in order to profit from it more than those other first group can afford. You know what we did? We built public housing. That's right. Forget the profit motive. The government, which doesn't have to make a profit after all, could afford to build large numbers of homes and to charge for them an amount of money that people could afford to pay. 
And that meant that the public nonprofit system was the savior of the failure of the private profit housing system. This was done in 1945 to 50 in this country, which is when most of the public housing we still have was constructed. In Vienna, it all happened decades before that, when socialists, that's right, became the political winners of elections in that country, and they converted roughly half the housing in Vienna, the capital city of Austria, into public housing of the same sort. With a commitment to people, we will never charge you more than X percent of your income. So you don't have to worry that you will be priced out of your ability to have a decent home. And this was so successful. This served the needs of so many people that nobody has dared mess with that system in the intervening roughly 100 years. So that even conservatives, when they win office in Austria, do not challenge or attack the public housing system, since they would immediately be voted out of office if they dared to do so. And by the way, that lesson has been learned by the private real estate interests of the United States. So they don't want there to be public housing because, of course, it's competition. The very same people who praise competition on their speech on the 4th of July savagely destroy it whenever it threatens them. The hypocrisy is very, very deep in all of this. So yeah, these are systemic problems. You're not going to solve the housing problem by leaving it in private hands any more than you're solving many, many other problems in our society, only if and when you face their social roots, their social connections, it is a mirage. It is a kind of self-delusion in this country, which I understand, by the way. It's scary to face the fact that a problem is social, that you have to change the whole society. It's much more comforting to imagine, oh, that by electing this one versus that one, or changing this rule, or passing that law will do the problem. It's so much less distressing. It's so much less upsetting. Yeah, but it doesn't solve the problem. We have had homelessness throughout the history of the United States. We haven't solved it. We have had poverty throughout the history of the United States, and we haven't solved it. Generations of well-meaning, perfectly intelligent, decent people tried with this reform and that reform to solve the problem. It didn't work, which is why those of us who understand that it's a social issue get impatient with whoever the latest reformer is, the latest one who says, gee, if you just vote for Biden rather than Trump, it'll be solved. If you just vote for Adams rather than de Blasio, and on and on and on, these things are going to get resolved. It doesn't work like that if you've had a century or more of the reforms and the problem is still there. And that's what we got. And I think a rational person really has very little option, but sooner or later, to admit that a problem is social and systemic. It's so important that we sort of pick that apart because there's always presented 
you know, two paths, two ways forward for social change, reform and revolution, or sometimes it's presented reform or revolution. But one of the issues that really is obviously true is that any reform that is, you know, brought to the people, either because of the needs of the system to stabilize the system or because the struggle of the people is great enough, grand enough that the ruling class is, you know, compelled to make concessions. Either way, those reforms can be taken away. We see right now the Supreme Court, six individuals are about to decide whether or not women in this country have the right to control their own bodies. Something that was assumed to be a guarantee and something that's enjoys immense popular support. 62% at least of the population says yes to Roe v. Wade, and yet these six individuals could take it back. When I moved to New York City as a younger person in the in the mid-70s, housing was affordable in New York. I had a two-bedroom apartment on 8th Avenue and 22nd Street and paid a little more than $100 a month, actually about $95 a month. Rent control was very strong. The the Communist Party and Socialist Parties had strong tenant unions, and they were in all five boroughs. And then the real estate developers and the banks went to war against affordable housing in New York, rent control, rent stabilization. All the things that had been achieved were taken back. Same with public housing, what you're talking about after World War II. By, by the 1960s and 1970s, because of underfunding and other problems associated with the way public housing was constructed, people who lived in public housing wanted to find some other place to live. And people who were not in public housing, the absolute thing that they didn't want to do was to move into public housing because public housing was associated with a lesser form of housing. But when we look at, say, Singapore or Austria, I've been in those apartments in both places. They're beautiful. Everybody would, you know, except for the very, very rich, people would be like very glad to live in affordable apartments that look like those apartments. My point, though, is that under the system of capitalism, where greed and avarice by the people at the top, the people who really are making key decisions is so, so great and so lawful, so systematized, so normalized that anything that is won in a reform can be taken back. And it really is especially when it comes to housing, such a compelling reason for the case for a radical transformation of society. Where you live, Richard, one out of every 10 kids in New York City's public schools is officially homeless. Doesn't mean they're living in a cardboard box, but they're not living in a stable home. That's one out of every 10. So teachers and administrators, they all have to deal with all of the social problems of children who don't have stable homes. And then you wonder, well, why are teachers you know, quitting? Well, anyway, all of these problems are connected because it really is fundamentally a social problem, which on the surface seems solvable, but in fact reveals itself to be unsolvable because of this particular social and economic order. And you know that there's a transition from that to the other topic that you mentioned at the beginning, the tax system of this country, which consistently moves money away from solving the problems that we have to solving problems that we don't have. I wanted to make sure that we talk briefly about the estate tax in this country because it is such a glaring example of all of this. 
before I just do the brief numbers, let's remember what an estate tax is. The idea is equality. In other words, every child born in a society committed to equality should have a, here we go, roughly equal chance to discover and develop his or her capabilities so that they can make good lives, so that they can contribute to society. Give them an equal chance. Give them a level playing field, however you want to put it. And in order to do that, we can't have some children whose parents are billionaires and other children born to parents who haven't a clue as to where the next meal is coming from, because that destroys any claim to equality. And let's remember, the French Revolution had on its banner, liberty, equality, fraternity. And the Declaration of Independence says it. we hold these truths to be self-evident that all are created equal, etc. So where's the equality? Answer, it has to have an estate tax, an inheritance tax. Those are the same thing. It means that the government steps in and says, you can accumulate wealth in your lifetime, that's fine, and you can keep it. But when you die, the community has an interest in creating a level playing field, equality of opportunity for all innocent children that are born. And in order to do that, we're going to take a tax, take the wealth you've accumulated, because otherwise you will use it to create a dynasty, a perpetuation of the very inequality that is the opposite of equality. Again, this is not rocket science. So here are the numbers showing you how much the commitment to equality has been violated here in the United States. And I'm just going to do the last 20 years. 20 years ago, here was the law for the federal government in America. The first $675,000 that you left at your death, you could leave no tax on them. So it already allowed a significant amount of inequality because, of course, starting with 675000 you inherit is a very different story than starting with none. And by the way, as late as the mid-70s, the exemption, the amount you could leave without paying tax, was only $60,000. So in those days, we had at least some symbolic recognition. Everything 20 years ago, year 2001, everything above $675,000 that you left, you could leave, but there would be a tax of 55%. So for every dollar over 675000 you left at your death, 55 cents would go to Uncle Sam to provide for what? Well, guess what? Housing, public housing, so that we would live in a city where we didn't have to step over people sleeping in doorways. And gee, what might that mean socially? All right, now fast forward to right now, 2021. What have the rich in America accomplished? Well, you can now leave more than $675,000 without incurring any 
inheritance or estate tax from the federal government. How much can you leave? Ready? $11.7 million. Not $675,000. And under the law, both you and your spouse. So in effect, your children can get $23.4 million before they pay a nickel in federal tax. No pretense at equality. And as if to rub it in our face one step further, for every dollar over 23.4 million you leave, you don't pay 55%, heavens to Betsy, no, you pay 40. That's what it is now. What you've done is perpetuated the grotesque inequality we have now. You've made it permanent. You've converted the, the rich one or one and a half percent into dynasties that last indefinitely into the future, that deprive masses of people of any chance to get anywhere in their lives because they're too busy scratching around for minimum housing, minimum food security, and all the rest. The claim that this is a democratic society committed to the principles of the founders of the United States, people like Jefferson and Washington and the Adams brothers and so on, is the height of hypocrisy. Richard, it's $23.4 million for a couple. As for a couple. Yeah, that's right. $23.4 million. $4 million at that before you pay a, Uncle Sam a nickel in tax. So obviously, 99% of the American people are not going to be leaving anything like that. They don't have that. They never did have it. They had no chance to get it. So this is purely a way of saying to the people at the top, don't worry, you can leave masses of money, tens of millions without a tax, and then we'll only take 40% of what you leave above that for the super wealthy. And by the way, if you hide your money in a uh, tax haven, you can of course leave much more and escape the taxes too, which is how they've been doing it all along those at the tippity top who can move their money around the world. I mean, the spectacle should disprove any claim of those who pretend that this society has any remote connection to equality of opportunity. Indeed. Uh, Phil Knight, founder of Nike, you know, all that advertising telling our children, go buy Nike, spend lots of money for Nike. He found a, a way, according to Bloomberg News, to use a variety of techniques to transfer billions of dollars to his family tax-free. And my final comment, Richard, before we say goodbye is, you know, one of the hallmarks of U.S. capitalism compared to European capitalism, one of the things that was talked about so much in the 19th century and perhaps in the at least in the first two-thirds of the 20th century is that unlike... Europe, if you were born a worker, you could be upwardly mobile. Unlike, say, in, in more rigidly class societies of old Europe, where if you were born a serf, you were a serf. If you were born a worker, you were going to end up a worker. That there was upward mobility in the United States. But one of the things that's 
quite obvious as inequality is deepened is there's no such thing for of downward mobility and the ruling class the capitalist class with this kind of wealth is able to secure so much political not just economic but political domination that this system without a radical transformation will be self-perpetuating so if you care about inequality if you care about getting rid of homelessness if you care about meeting human needs we need a profound change. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. He has a new hard copy edition of his book, Understanding Marxism, which has been released recently. It features a new lengthy introduction, strengthening the case for why all of us need to understand why Marxism is so important. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow with a new multi-part series on the rise and fall of the Soviet Union and the lessons for socialists. So we'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.